0: Hello and welcome to Careers by Design the Interviews. I'm Sharon Belden-Castingway, director of the Gordon Career Center at Wesleyan University. Today I'm speaking with David Weald, class of 1978, who has been described by CNBC as one of the foremost IPO and stock market analysts in the world. David, when listeners hear this, they probably assume that in your youth you were packing your slide rule to take with you to Wharton. So tell me about what your path was to a liberal arts education and why Wesleyan.
1: Well, it was circ- circuitous. I went to Wesleyan because Wesleyan was a terrific school academically, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, but I really never sort of thought of myself as a liberal arts major because I, I I studied in the sciences and I actually uh, was a biology major. Um, I didn't, uh, you know, really even like biology that much. I ended up doing mostly. I mean, one of the great things about Wesleyan is it gave me the opportunity to take graduate level courses in molecular genetics and uh, and f- satisfy my undergraduate requirements with them. So, I did that. I found I was pretty gifted in uh, genetics. I got, I think. Uh, in the pre-med course, you know, one of the one of the top, if not the top, grades in the class. Doing very little work, okay. <laughs> so it came it came very easily to me, and uh, other things did not. Um, okay. And uh, so, I, you know, I, I I bounced around for a while, thinking that I wanted to be a doctor. And um, in fact, most of my friends from Wesley are all doctors. My best friend, okay. uh, my uh, my uh, college girlfriend, they're all docs. Um, but I, I followed uh, a graduate of Wesley around a hospital one day uh, who was in medical school, I think, at uh, University of Connecticut, and found that I didn't like the patient side so much. Okay. So that caused a, a re-examination, and uh, I went to New York not knowing what I wanted to do. Worked in television for a couple of years, television post-production. Worked on Campaign 80... Um, hmm. Uh, we had actually at one point all of the Ronald Reagan, all of the Jimmy Carter and all of the John Anderson commercials simultaneously. We were bicycling them throughout the country. So it was pretty clear just looking at the advertising strategies, who was going to win uh, right. Reagan did. It was pretty simple. There's a bear in the woods was the message. Um, we went, uh, you know, from there, uh, I sort of just, uh, thought I, you know, might want to go and go to business school and, uh. So I applied. I didn't think I had the attention span to spend two years in a in a in a program here in in the US, which was what an MBA was. And Stern, uh, which was then called the Graduate School of Business Administration, actually pioneered the internet an international management program and they had right. more slots to go overseas. I had spent a year at the Sorbonne when I was uh at Wesleyan and uh and then uh, so I so I um, I, I kind of cooked the deal. I said that if I you know applied, uh, I'd pretty much be able to choose where I wanted to go. And so I sort of I went to business school in the second year. I studied finance in the second year. I I went to aix in France and the Stockholm School of Economics in Sweden, uh, which at the time, in retrospect, was probably not the smartest idea because it makes it very difficult to interview.
0: Right. Right. Right.
1: And, uh, so, but um, but it was a heck of an education, you know, being exposed to different cultures. I and mean, uh, Sweden uh, had a, a capitalist economic system from the standpoint, of, but uh, of uh, of business. But yet, it was pretty much socialist from the standpoint of incomes. And, right, right. And so, you know, just by being there, I mean, I would urge every student that has an opportunity to study overseas to do it. It's a, it opens up whole new worlds and. And when you hang out with uh, kids that are of different you know, cultures, uh, you get to see the United States through a, 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 a set of eyes, which are very different than what you've grown up with. And I think it was probably one of the most important educational experiences of my, uh, indeed, edu- indeed, e- experiences period of my life. But, uh, you know, I came back. I wanted to do venture capital. I love growth companies. I had that science background. It was very hard. I couldn't get into... Uh, uh biotechnology companies were just emerging mm-hmm. but I didn't have enough of either science it wasn't you know didn't I had uh, didn't have a, a doctorate and I wasn't uh I wasn't um uh, didn't have a lot of operating experience so I bounced around and uh somebody offered me a job to be in an equity syndicate department of a regional firm at a time when the stock market was in the um in, in the in the tank mm. uh and it was uh, the best uh opportunity in the circumstances that would get me closest to growth company that I could taking small companies public uh and um, and uh so I got my foot in the door at a regional firm out in Colorado that no longer exists it was sort of the best job available mm-hmm. uh fitting my kind of interests and uh found out that I was uh, extraordinarily good at uh looking at uh, small companies and telling other people in fact the major bracket wall street firms I told most I told the people that were controlling most of the deals more about their deals than they knew themselves <laughs> and that got got me on the radar screen of a couple of the big new york firms and okay and that's how i ended up back in new york uh, yeah.
0: how did you get interested specifically in smaller companies was that accidental because of what the options were available to you when you got back from europe or was that something that you had already in your head? In other words, were you already looking beyond the bulge bracket firms or Fortune 500 companies coming out of your business program?
1: Mm-hmm. My, uh, my father, who is uh, an intellectual properties attorney, um, and I used to have uh, you know, raucous debates about whether or not uh, biotechnology and genetic engineering is going to be patentable. Okay. And obviously he was much more qualified. He's won <laughs> one of the best thesis prize at Yale Law School and internet uh, best international thesis prize. He's a brilliant guy. And um and uh but I just said, you know, from a public policy standpoint, um uh, people were not gonna make uh, the investments in, in in genetic engineering and biotechnology mm-hmm. if uh if it wasn't protectable. Right? right. And I think that uh I probably ended up uh you know in retrospect being right and i think some of that uh some of that intellectual property is being reexamined but what what fascinated me and it was when genentech went public and the company i think the stock was priced around 30 and it traded at 80 bucks the first day right and i just sort of said you know wow this is a revolution mm-hmm. and uh then i started to see that um there were major shifts in technology over time that were creating revolutions and that uh, you know, there was a real God's work in, um, in 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 investment banking and capital markets, which was getting money into the hands of entrepreneurs so that they right. could re-energize the economy and and and, and bring uh, uh, real quality of life changes to um, to humanity. And um, and it, it really was something that uh, that uh, that interested me. That sort of a, a efficient allocation of capital, which, mm-hmm. by the way. You know one of the things that I'm now noted for is is basically uh, writing and, and telling the SEC and Congress how they really messed all of that up. Right. Um, I mean we had the greatest IPO markets in the world bar none and uh, what they did with electronic markets and low-cost trading is they dropped the bottom out of it. We used to do prior to the dot-com bubble we were doing 500 initial public offerings a year we now do uh, an average of about uh, 140 a year, right. and on a bigger economy uh, we should probably, there's an argument to be made that today we should be doing 1,000. So from where I sit, that delta, that difference, which was 1,000 to 140, it's 860 IPOs a year, is probably worth over a decade, 10 million jobs to the U.S. economy, and and uh, competitive advantage mm-hmm. for the U.S. economy, mm-hmm. and ultimately mm-hmm. a bigger tax base, right. and ability to fund national security. So you know, I so um, when I left NASDAQ, uh, well, I mean, I I did investment banking. My mentor, um, who you know had had sort of fashioned me in the role of Mr. Fix It, and I went around and I ran a whole series of businesses. I ran uh, equity capital markets, the equity new issues business, and over the course of you know, my career there, I probably priced about 500 initial public offerings, 500 follow-on equity offerings. I raised the first money for Larry Fink of BlackRock mm-hmm. back when it was still called Blackstone Financial Management. Mm-hmm. It's now the largest asset manager in the world. They were really tiny at the time. Uh, you know, kind of heady stuff. I took uh, a lot of biotech companies public, uh, some of which, uh, I mean, Celgene. I raised uh, raised money for Celgene when it was a $100 million market value, and they were trying to take thalidomide, which was the, the, um, the drug that actually caused birth defects, you know, back up, but it had real, real value to it, and that company today is an $80 billion market value company, um, and so, you know, I, I basically, and I think if, if I was giving everybody, a, you know, a message, you got to work your tail off, right? Uh, there is nothing in, in this world that, you know, that comes, you know, without hard work, and that the thought that you can do a nine to five or an eight to five job and that's adequate is I think really delusional right we 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 really do our creative thinking in the off hours uh, when we 're not pressured in answering phones uh, it's uh and i I think that if I had one defining characteristic, I think I was the hardest working guy around or pretty close to it and um, and it served me in great stead I mean I did a lot of creative things if sixty percent of all. Equity capital uh, raising today is uh, is um, finds its roots in something that I pioneered back in the 90s, which was uh, there was a there was a rise in the number of hedge funds and shorting of stocks. They were putting pressure on share prices for companies that were trying to access capital. So you'd be out there trying to do a deal and your stock would be trading at twenty dollars a share and the shorts would take it down and it'd be at fourteen that's incredibly dilutive and it really it ends up uh, dwarfing any other cost that you would pay as a corporation in terms of commissions to to wall street so how do you get rid of that and what we did was we used the form s3 shelf registration and uh... we did an overnight transaction for a non-investment grade company that we ever green the due diligence we kept the kept the, the the standards up because we have intelligence responsibilities and can easily get sued in a class action suit if we don't do that and that was like a $125 million overnight equity offering and it gave birth to a whole series of, of things and it was just because in the off hours we were tinkering looking for solutions for clients and um, and then uh, so I, I ran equity capital markets I did, uh, uh, I got asked to do um, Strategy for banking, research, sales, and trading. Uh, we wrote a, a real tome that uh, people really uh, highly regarded all the way over at Prudential, which was the parent company, mm-hmm, Prudential mm-hmm. Securities at the time, sixty thousand employees, and it, and it caught the attention of the uh, CEO of, of Prudential as well. We got the backing. We implemented. They said, "Okay, Smarty Pants." I got kicked upstairs to run corporate finance. Put in the new uh, the new business side of the investment banking effort, which was all what we call the Seven Sisters, the seven core industry groups. uh, uh, I'll get them with healthcare, energy, uh, real estate, all areas that we thought that we could, you know, that we could actually uh, drive some growth. And we tripled revenue in three years, doubled productivity per banker, which was probably the most important metric. And then, and then uh, Wick Simmons, who became my mentor, he had been the president of uh, Shearson with Sandy Weill, a noted luminary. um, Sure. And, uh, and uh, Wick asked me if I would, um, if I would uh, run the dot-com businesses for the Prudential, and so it's hard to turn down the CEO. He said, you know, right, even though right. you kind to take a pay cut to do it.
0: And what year was this? Oh, Just boy, to put it, it in the context. Probably
1: uh, it was it was uh, during the during the bubble.
0: Right, so okay. We
1: felt like we were a little bit behind because mm-hmm. we didn't do anything. I took it over, so it would have been. You know, call it 1996-ish or something. Okay, there, so that you had 90... been at
0: Prudential Securities for... 99,
1: 99. is. What for a
0: little over a decade, it sounds like that. Yeah, I got, to, I got
1: to Prudential Securities in 1987. Okay. Just prior to the crash. Right, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Timing's everything.
0: And then you switch into the dot-com world, in other words, uh, working with smaller businesses it sounds like again yeah well we of, were it, a it, well small you were, were a business smaller bu- right, a business. right 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 yeah. and the, but heading into the rise in other words yeah. it sounds like we're in the middle of the rise by yeah. the sounds of it
1: and we uh and we did a great job actually i mean what we did was we, i felt it was sort of cheating but it was really smart we uh we uh i got uh Wix to the ceo to let me open up accounts with all the competitors so that we could see how they were you know mm, operating, okay. how they were designed and We'd spend nights, you know, over coffee and donuts, uh, projecting up other people's websites and, okay. and taking them apart and, and deciding what we liked and what we didn't. And at the time, Fidelity had spent, you know, $30 million on how people actually use things. And we mm-hmm. went in the ratings from nowhere uh, within, I think, about a six-month period to rank number three out of 30 sites. It was pretty okay. imp- a pretty imp- impressive move for not a lot of money. And then art ryan who was the chairman and ceo of the prudential um uh, you know one day woke up and found out that he had dot-com businesses in each of the verticals within the prudential sort of a yeah, s- financial yeah. supermarket they had one in insurance they had one in asset management mm-hmm. bank and trust uh the the brokerage side the security side of the business the real estate side and so he had each one of the people i was one of the heads come and do us uh, do a presentation to him and okay and as I like to say in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. Me, <laughs> You're the first guy that understands technology and business. Okay, I'm putting it all under you. And, okay. and that was a bit of uh, sort of the beginning of the end in some respects because what they did was they had me matrix reporting to the head of the insurance company and uh, the head of the securities business. They didn't get along. And I was seen by the insurance person as more of a securities person. And so the politics, mm-hmm. you know, and then Wick. Uh, uh, left and became chairman and CEO of NASDAQ, mm-hmm. and so I followed him over and I became vice okay. chairman of NASDAQ, NASDAQ. You
0: anticipated my next question of well, how did that transition happen over to NASDAQ, yeah, and, and what was that like for you at the time? Like, what was your thinking at the time about how that was going to change your career path?
1: You know, it really wasn't a lot of thinking. You know, I had, I I have just inordinate respect for Wick. He's a class act, uh, and uh, always do the right. Thing, you know, in some very difficult circumstances, uh, and uh, so I had a high degree of admiration for him personally, and for me, someone who had taken so many growth companies public, to be asked to run the listings businesses of Nasdaq, you know, globally, mm-hmm. was kid in the candy shop kind of <laughs> stuff. I mean, it was yeah, a pay cut, but you know, I I I got to speak to. I used to I I joked that I was the complaint department for Steve Jobs. <laughs> I, I I also joke that I was the reason I'm the reason why the iPhone has email on it because he called me up one day saying, you know, uh, Dave, uh, I'm gonna move the listing uh uh the Apple listing over to the New York Stock Exchange because I just discovered can you imagine and this is how Steve was. You know, you pick up the phone and he's after you about something. And I and uh he said, uh, uh I've got uh I just discovered that you're standardized at NASDAQ on Dell computers, Dell laptops. And if you don't convert everything over to the Mac, you know, right now, I'm moving to the New York Stock Exchange, which, of course, would have been a huge blow for NASDAQ. Sure. And I, uh, in my mind, I was I was doing the moonwalk, trying to figure out, OK, how do I come back at this? And I said, look, uh, Steve, uh, I've got all my guys in the field right now are on Blackberries, right? mm. And nobody's talking on phones anymore. They're on... Remote email it's right. asymmetrical communication right, and uh, they communicate with their with their you know their their uh, significant others that way mm-hmm. they communicate at work They're, nobody's on cell phone so much anymore and and the mac doesn't integrate with the Blackberry right and it was really interesting because he went from being on the offensive to he stepped back on the phone and he said that's really interesting. Tell me more about it. He had no clue that People were using remote email. He really mm. didn't, and so he spent the next 45 minutes with me asking every question you could imagine about how people were using email on the BlackBerry. So that's why I joked that I'm a reason right. why, why emails <laughs> on on the iPhone today. Uh, but you know, we. But I got it was terrific. I, I met uh, Craig Barrett, uh, who was the uh, chairman, became the chairman, but was the CEO of Intel. Uh, Tom Stenberg ran, a, he just passed away, but he ran a committee for me, which was, he was the founder of Staples, mm-hmm. uh, Howard Schultz, uh, who was the head of um, of, uh, of uh, uh, Starbucks, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, lots of interesting, companies. I mean, yeah. surreal conversations, we had a dinner one night with a bunch of these guys talking about, you know, what sports teams they had put bids in on, and,
0: okay. you know, so.
1: <laughs> You know, it's the, uh, the, 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 the top of the, the top of the right. 1% that right. has entirely right. too much money. Yeah. Right.
0: Yeah. Well, and, and speaking of which, you're known as the father of the JOBS Act. So tell me a bit about the JOBS Act, what that is, what the acronym is for our listeners, and about your involvement with it, why you thought that was important, and why that activism for small companies became important to you.
1: Well, I... I if you, I'm a bit of a data junkie, and I, I think that one of the one of the um, things that people need to understand in Washington, a lot of times they really don't understand what the long-term trends are. And I would say even economists, they lose sight of the forest for the trees. Economists are really good at measuring, you know, na- like micro markets economists, short-term impact. So there's a new rule that's put in place. We'll look at the three months' worth of trading data before the rule was put in place and three months afterwards. Mm-hmm. But, you know... Markets are just not that tidy, right? What happens is, you know, you you make some changes in the incentives and disincentives. Wall Street doesn't react overnight, and you can have things, you know, you can have Wall Street reacting to them a decade later, mm-hmm. you know, in terms and and hiring and firing people as a result, reapportioning assets, and it it takes somebody that has some field vision to kind of look back, make sense of the data, and start to kind of put it into a form where. People down in Washington are going to say, oh, my gosh, we've got a problem. Mm -hmm. And so I knew we had a problem. And I think a lot of people in the business knew that we had a problem, but we couldn't convince uh, people in Washington. So when I left NASDAQ, um, rather than, and I had opportunities to go to, you know, bulge bracket, the top Wall Street firms, and I just felt... uh, um, that they weren't going to let me say what I thought needed to be said. Mm-hmm. They were really much more interested in sort of large cap companies sure. and large deals. And you know, when you work with one of those firms, they want you to ring the cash register for them, and that's how you make your living. And I thought that uh, it would be a kind of a sin of omission if I if I I didn't try and uh, say what I knew I, I knew needed to be said. So I got a, an accounting firm because they weren't conflicted on trading. They didn't trade mm-hmm. to. They wanted to raise their visibility in equity capital markets, so I got them to basically allow me to write what I wanted to write, distribute it, raise their profile. This was Grant Thornton. Yeah, it was Grant Thornton, mm-hmm. and um, and so for a number of years, you know, effectively worked for uh, Grant Thornton. I, I ran their capital markets group at an outsourced basis, but really, what my my mission was to raise their profile, mm-hmm. and we did it, and um, and uh, we were able to sh- uh, pull together a couple of. Uh, slides that were really transformative i think for people's thinking one showed that uh it was a mountain chart and uh this is one of the great lessons i've learned down in congress I mean, the first time i went down there i had really complicated you know charts and with a lot of data and i thought they were absolutely brilliant and i had uh um i had a, a chief of staff for senator crapo say to me you're out of your mind <laughs> and i said what do you mean i did well, the only person that you don't understand who you're dealing with here, right? <laughs> you right. Know, you've been living this stuff for your career. You know it forwards and backwards, and these guys are uh, are just, you know, they, they they have they're coming from a zero base of knowledge. So what you really need to do is step back one idea per slide, and you uh, know make it dramatic. And so we did that, and um, the two slides that we came up with, one was. That ended up being there were a lot of slides, but the ones that were most compelling, one was a mountain chart. We looked at the number, the the numbers of the percentage of small IPOs sub fifty million dollars versus large IPOs larger than fifty million dollars, going back to nineteen ninety one. Okay. And what it what it does is it takes out the cyclicality of IPO markets. You know, you got five hundred IPOs one year, hundred the next year. Mm -hmm, We're mm -hmm. just looking at the splits, small versus large. And what we found was that the small IPO Went from 80% of all IPOs to 20% mm. in one year, and it never recovered. Okay, and nobody knew that, and a lot of people made fun of me and said, "Oh, the mark, is it the IPO market's cyclical wheel doesn't know what he's talking about." And I was just saying, you know, at some point you're going to realize that the IPO market's not coming back on the scale that would make anybody happy, and at some point you're going to have to say, "Okay, we know what the heck we're talking about." But we found that in 1998, which is in the height of the dot-com bubble, so nobody thought to look there, we discovered that the IPO, the small IPO market had crashed, like a comet had hit the earth, extinction of the dinosaurs, very dramatic effect. And so we looked to see what happened there, and we found out that that was the shift to electronic stock markets. Mm, And so actually mm -hmm. the, the big collapse in trading spread economics, the incentives for market makers to commit capital, research analysts to write research on small cap stock, salesmen to market these stocks, all of that visibility creation that the, the, was no longer economical to do. And so we shifted to low cost, hyper-efficient, you know, low commission, low trading spread markets very, very abruptly. Right. And uh, the IPO market looked like it was healthy because it was in the height of the dot-com bubble and massive amounts of cash right. were booing right. everything. And then, all of a sudden, the end of 2000, we had the dot-com bubble corrected. We ended up with what I affectionately call the bubble rubble. It was very quiet, and everybody just thought that it was a, a, a market cycle. Right. And we kept saying that, no, if you look at the data and you parse, and you look at the difference between small and large IPOs, you're going to find that actually something uh, systemic has mm-hmm, occurred. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's been a major structural change in markets and this market's not going to recover right. unless we go out and fix it. So, the Jobs Act was uh, the other the other the other uh, uh other f- sort of famous uh, uh slide is we actually looked at the number of listed companies on major stock exchanges mm-hmm. and it's very tough data to come by. and We indexed it to that same period in, of time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What you found was that the United States went from 9,000 publicly listed companies down to 5,000. Think about that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And then China was growing like a weed. So Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you can imagine when the House Subcommittee on Capital Markets, when they put that slide up there, one of the congressmen said to me, Mr. Weald, which one is the United States? I said, uh, Congressman, we're the one on the bottom. (laughs) Mr. Weald, (laughs) which one is China? Mr. Weald, uh, (laughs) Congressman, they're the ones at the top. Right. Mr. Wheel, which one would you prefer to be? And I and he said, don't answer <laughs> don't that answer question. That. <laughs> <laughs> so um, it, it got, right, them, right, it got right. them incredibly motivated. And um, and uh, I think that just the, the, what people don't understand is the JOBS Act, which stands for the Jumpstart Our Business Startups Act. It's a big acronym. And uh, uh, there are actually uh, six separate titles that were individual bills that got wrapped up into one omnibus bill. But for the most part... Uh, Every one of them that was sponsored by an individual congressman had been citing our work as right, sort okay. of the crise de guerre, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so uh, Title I created the new category of emerging growth company, and it allows you to take companies public with a confidential filing. So, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. you get over that fear of I'm going to – I can't get the deal done, and I've just given right, everybody right, my right, trade right. secrets. So that, that's been helpful, uh, one is testing the waters under Title One of the Jobs yep. Act, which means that you can talk to institutions now. You don't have to worry about conditioning the market, mm-hmm. which has been very important to reigniting the, uh, the 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 biotech market, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Because now you can get somebody in there to really do the due diligence, because no nobody's going to make a you know a, a five year five million dollar investment in a heavy IP company without really kicking the tires, right. or at least knowing that somebody has it's a proxy right, that right, they right. can they can follow into a deal. So it allows you to get. You know, big, sophisticated investors to do their due diligence, get in there, make a make a long term investment prior to the IPO, uh, which helps uh, helps uh, sustain it in the a- interest or create mm-hmm. interest in mm-hmm. the aftermarket. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the other big ones are you know, crowdfunding of securities that comes from the Jobs Act, right? right. And um, uh, there's also uh, uh, Regulation A plus, which is you can raise up to fifty million dollars in essentially what's mm-hmm. a public offering with a much lower level of disclosure mm-hmm. than you could before. And uh, and um, so I, I think in the aggregate, uh, we also took the number, there was a restriction, we called it the Facebook rule, but it used to be that if you had more than 500 shareholders, you automatically had to become a publicly registered company. Mm-hmm. And we thought that it was now high time that we gave companies who were the job creators uh, more flexibility, and so we took that uh, that uh, limit up to 2,000. Right, okay. And um, so we're not forcing companies to go public mm-hmm. prematurely. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of work to do, though. I mean, I mentioned you know, earlier that the aftermarket profitability or the incentives for Wall Street to provide support for small companies, that still hasn't been fixed.
0: Well, you've anticipated my next question, which is what work still needs to be done to bring fairness to the equity markets for the smaller companies?
1: Yeah, I, I think... I think that you got to get uh, you got to have a different market model fundamentally. That the, the one size fits all. I mean, the madness of stock markets today is that we're trading uh, micro-cap, small cap companies that are you know one six thousandth the t- size of Apple in terms of market value. We're, tre- we're, we're trading them with the same market structure right. um, that we are the S and P five hundred. And, um, you know, I think intuitively people understand that there's something wrong with that. $100 mm-hmm, million dollars mm-hmm, versus mm-hmm. $600 6,000 times larger. There aren't even 6,000 listed companies right, on the markets any longer. So um, we've advocated that uh, for uh, just starting from scratch and saying we have to create a, a new stock exchange structure with new rules that's totally optimized for the needs of the, Small capitalization company ecosystem, right? Okay, and and get balance back in there. I think that uh, at some point we probably will go after, uh, you know, the SEC and FINRA in the sense, through Congress, by saying, look, I think that their mission needs to be changed. Because why do markets exist? Markets exist to support economic growth. That's why they exist. Right. Okay. But yet the SEC's mission is around. you know, I- investor protection, mm-hmm. uh, capital formation, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, and transparency, and you know, market integrity. Well, that's great, but I think that those are really the the three things that you kind of need to drive economic growth and to make markets work for entrepreneurs. And so I I think that uh, that what happens there is is that they probably overemphasized investor protection, and it's been construed to mm-hmm. be. Um, Saving people money, mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. and then
1: what happens is, is, that at some point, at some point, you you strip out all the economic incentive. There's no salesman selling securities, right, right, uh, and uh, and the visibility creation mechanism for a small company is gutted, mm-hmm. and they 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 languish. All of a sudden, it becomes incredibly unattractive to access public markets in this country. Right. So I think that's I think that still we have a long ways to go. There's mm-hmm. actually a, a pilot that uh, probably very few people know started with us. We we uh, we we floated an idea with a head of the House subcommittee on capital markets, the vice chairman of that committee a number of years ago at a dinner, which was to increase the minimum increment that you can trade a security in from a penny to a nickel to get some economics back into it. And so the SEC is actually now finally um, starting a pilot to, oh, to do that, okay. although it's become... Incredibly, much more complicated. And, As it
0: always is, right? <laughs> uh, all the special interest descended <laughs> yeah, on right, it. Yeah, right, uh, right, right,
1: You know, and I think that, yeah. that that's one. of the, I think it's probably no news to any right. anybody right, that special right. interests and in lobbying money in 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 Washington have really created some fairly uh, perverse yeah. outcomes.
0: Well, I'll tell you, we have a lot of students here at Wesleyan who are interested in starting small businesses, who I'm sure in the long run will appreciate your activism. So David Wheel, thank you very much for joining me today.
1: My pleasure, Sharon.
0: This has been Careers by Design the Interviews. If you enjoyed this podcast, help us attract new listeners by leaving a comment on iTunes. And check out our Careers by Design online course, available on iTunes U and the Gordon Career Center website. This podcast is produced by Sharon Belden-Castingway, music by Andrew Santanello.